baby, you are gonna go broke showing turkeys like these. It's turkey time. Come on, come on. California anyway. I was working. Working where? Beverly Hills. <laughs> <laughs> That's up with you. Hey, Mikey. Oh. Well, you don't mind if I ask around a little bit, do you? Don't do a damn thing. Stay out of this. You know, this is the cleanest and nicest police car I've ever been in in my life. This thing's nice in my apartment. I just got off the phone with Inspector Todd in Detroit. He says if you're out here investigating the Tandino murder... How you doing? You needn't bother coming back. You haven't the slightest idea who you're dealing with. Look, all three of us are cops. We should be working together. Cover me. Police! You're all under arrest! You do that again? I'll shoot you myself. Now, please, something to drink, a wine, a cocktail, a, a espresso. No, I'm fine, thank you. I'll make it myself right back there with a little lemon twist. It's good. Try it. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Let's Talk Turkeys. I am your host, Movie Miss, and joining me today is my co-host, Drive-In Dave. Hello, sir. Hello. So this episode is going to be a little late to the game. It's about a month overdue, but we are doing a movie for Dave's birthday pick. Dave, please tell everybody what movie you chose to cover and why. I mean, I was originally going to go with Debbie Does Dallas, but you said you didn't want to do that one. So uh, I had to go (laughs) for my second choice, uh, which is one of my favorite movies growing up as a kid. Beverly Hills Cop. Original. The 80s iconic classic. And so out there, if you're wondering why the hell are they talking about this? Yes, it is because it is Dave's birthday pick and it's our show. and We can do whatever the hell we want. And I told him, pick whatever you movie you want, whether it's a turkey or not. It is not a turkey on Rotten Tomatoes. It has a critic score of 83% and audience of 82. Not a turkey. I don't think it should be anyway. I love this movie too. <laughs> yeah, no, this this is a great movie. And if anyone out there is wondering why, you know, we're covering and I've just got, you know, one thing to say to you. Who the hell are you to judge us for what we do? How dare you? How dare you people? (laughs) No, I would think they'd like a little break anyway, the listening audience uh, from bad movies all the time to have something a little refreshing. And boy, I'll tell you what, I haven't seen this in like 20 years and it was a treat. It does not hold up in many ways and we'll get to those, but damn, is it a fun watch and it's so fast. It goes right by. It really does. And, and it's, I've got so many fond memories tied to this movie. Uh, I mean, like as a kid, I never saw this. I uh, never got to see this in theaters. Never saw it on, uh, you know, VHS at the time. It was always on television. And for some odd reason, it would always be on when we would go and get pizza from uh, Shakey's. Uh, we'd go get a Shakey's Shakey's! Pizza. Yes. <laughs> and then even after Shakey's went out of business, uh, someone took over and kept the recipe. So we, we were still technically getting Shakey's pizza. That's uh, awesome. Get a pizza, come home, sit down and turn on the TV. And then, well, magically, Beverly Hills Cop is on. That's funny to me to try to imagine because I don't remember at the edited for TV version of this. Because I was trying to come up with a fun game for us for, for, the, for the movie, for the show. 
and I came up with one, but one of them was going to be how many times does the F-bomb get dropped? I had to stop trying to keep track after 10 minutes because I lost count. <laughs> That's I mean, how many times. I feel, like, I feel like if you tried to play a drinking game do with the F-bomb, you would be drunk by the time Inspector Todd is done with his little speech in the beginning. You'd just be like, right? oh, shit, I'm done, man. I can't handle this. You'd be passed out and not watching the movie anymore. Exactly. It was bad. So I can't even imagine trying to edit this for TV. Like, I bet that was hard. <laughs> they probably did the, the dub over where they say frick, but you can tell their mouth is saying fuck. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, to me, the thing that, bo that boggles my mind was because like the first time I ever saw this uh, unedited, the strip club scene, I had no idea you actually saw tits in the movie. On cable, you never saw anything. So I was like, oh, okay, they go to a strip club, they're listening to music, whatever, and then watch the unedited version on DVD. And I'm like, holy crap. Yeah, this movie's not shitty and it has titties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just totally like broke my whole phrasing. <laughs> Still one of the best quotes. It's, it's going on a t-shirt, I swear to God. All right, so let's talk about this movie. So this film was, uh, I guess budgeted around 14 million four of that was for eddie murphy and did you happen to read any of the behind the scenes casting notes or watch any specials because the dvd had behind the scene casting special yeah i didn't do the dvd because it was on i got paramount for a couple of months to catch up on star trek so luckily it was on there all three of them were on there so i was like all right well i'm gonna go ahead and watch this um so i went ahead and just watched it on paramount again but I did do the research and I learned so much shit. I had no idea. Like the fact that this was written for Sylvester Stallone. Yep. That blew my mind. I was like, holy crap. And just the changes that they made, like like the hearing what Stallone wanted to do with it, like make it an action movie. Uh, and then like, I think he said like the character of Michael Fendino was going to be his brother. Jenny was going to be his love interest. Rosewood yes. was a totally different character. They were going to kill him at one point. That movie would have been fun for a Stallone film, but it would not have lived up to what this movie did. Oh, 100%. They, Eddie Murphy, 98% of his dialogue was say whatever you want and multiple takes and they chose their favorites. Like he didn't have to stick to the script, which I love, and neither did um, Bronson Pinchot. Yeah, I heard that. And then also apparently um, Judge Reinhold and uh, John Afton, uh, they were able to ad lib and kind of just roll with it as well so it's like you basically this whole movie was basically just like ad-libbed movie which i think makes it so funny agreed and it even helps um the casting producer had worked with a couple of these uh actors previously so she knew who she wanted for what and was calling people and they had just about everybody in place when it was a stallone film and when he dropped out and they brought eddie murphy in they had to change like you said the love interest to the friend and the brother to the best friend and all that. The only thing to me that didn't make sense, everything made sense with Eddie Murphy being Axel Foley. The only thing that didn't make sense to me was they really, really tried hard, I think, to point out that he was a fish out of water because he, besides like two other people, he's like the only black man in this, in Beverly Hills. Like, <laughs> <laughs> There's like nobody of color anywhere else in this movie pretty much except in detroit not in beverly hills i think we get the banana man which we'll get to him <laughs> yeah and, and that's about the, it there was the other cop oh that's right that's right the second team that has to tail him but yeah, but that's I, about I it think, 
Yeah, I want to say, I think you're right. I don't recall anyone else that was black in there. But I think that also yeah. to me, what was funny was I never, I never caught that until you said it. Like, it's just at that point in time, I, I don't think you were like thinking that of like, oh, where are all the black people at? You just kind of went with the, okay. In the background, when you're just watching subconsciously, it really hits home that fish out of water point because you're not seeing any other black people really. And you're like, wow, he's really out of his element here in, on the coast. I do want to point out, like I said, the budget was 13, 14 million. They made 316 worldwide. 200 and something was domestic. This movie Damn. killed. It did so well. And I can see why. And, and you know, it's one of your favorites. Yeah, well, I heard that they said, like, if you uh, adjust for inflation, this is like one of the top grossing rated R movies up there with like uh, The Exorcist and Robocop and stuff. And like at the time, it was like the number one rated R movie until I forget what it was that came out. Oh, it was The Matrix Reloaded came out, um, obviously, years, years later. But they said like that knocked it out as the number one rated R movie. Oh, really? That, that's what I got off of IMDb. I mean, granted, this is IMDb. Uh, so sometimes you have to take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like there's a little, I can see the adjusted gross one. I can see that being accurate, like Matrix Reloaded being the only one to knock it out. I don't know if that's 100% accurate. I feel like there were other rated R movies that could have done it. What was Reloaded? Was that the third one? I think it might have been the second one. I think the third one was Revelations or something. I, I kind oh, of okay. tune out after one, like one was <laughs> iconic and then two was just like, okay, if it's on, I'll watch it, but I'm not you know, going out of my way. So for this movie, they filmed in Southern California, some in Beverly Hills, a lot in Pasadena, which I love that they were, and in Detroit. So I love that they were on theme, on point, filming where they're supposed to be. Everything looks right. That helps also lend to the enjoyability of, of the watchability of this. You're like, not trying to suspend display, like they are where they're supposed to be. <laughs> and I appreciate that. So we have the director, Martin Brest. Did you look his filmography up? I didn't, but I caught some of the behind the scenes thing with him. So I know mm -hmm. some of what he did because I saw he was he was fired off of War Games. Uh, I think oh, is really? what they said. He was on uh, War Games. He was fired. And this was like his second directing job. Uh, and then it was Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer wanted him for this. And so yeah. they said that he flipped a coin to decide whether or not he wanted to do this movie. And he said years later, he's got the coin framed. And hanging in his office because it was such a great decision. Right? The producers, Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer. I, you can tell that this one and the second one, he's also a producer on. You can tell his, his involvement. There were lots of photos behind the scenes of them on set being very involved and very active. And you can kind of tell if you know, oh, his, his aesthetic now, looking back, his touch on things. You're like, yeah, this has definitely got Bruckheimer fingers in the pie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> If I remember right, it was it was Don Simpson that had, had passed away or something, right? Because it was like they were a team for a number of years. A lot of years. Yeah. And then he passed, because I always remember like that era when it was Simpson and Bruckheimer produced some of the best action films. Like those were like some of the like my top favorite films that had come out when the two of them were together. I just loved their work. So I had to laugh, though, because when I was looking at the director, Martin Brest, his filmography, he directed in 2003... Gili. Oh. <laughs> Jennifer Lopez, Ben Affleck flop. <laughs> oh. I was like, oh, wah, wah. Bummer, dude. Bummer. Oh, the, the movie that ruined a generation. <laughs> I know. I just, I like, I had to point that out. <laughs> I just had to throw that out there. So the writer for this, Daniel Petrie Jr. for the screenplay, uh, he mm -hmm. did quite a few films that I enjoy. 
The Big Easy, Turner and Hooch, Toy Soldiers. He, he's got a number of things that he wrote after Beverly Hills Cop. Again, like we said, a lot of ad lib happens in this movie, but his script is the bones of it, you know? And then yeah. the actors just added all the meat. <laughs> okay, so he's the writer, but I, I saw that they said it went through multiple, because I guess the concept came out in 1975. Eisner had the concept for the film. And then it's yeah. gone like from 75 up until when it was finally produced multiple scripts so I, I would be curious of like was he the final writer yes he's the final one that gets credit uh, okay yes that is how that works usually uh okay so top build cast we have eddie murphy judge reinhold john ashton lisa albacher ronnie cox james russo and jonathan banks and then we can get to the other people as we go so the imdb plot a freewheeling Detroit cop pursuing a murder investigation finds himself dealing with the very different culture of Beverly Hills. To the point. <laughs> That's actually one of the best IMD plots we have ever read off. Um, it, it, yeah. doesn't, it doesn't like, you know, shy away from anything. It can give you the whole basic plot. It doesn't throw anything weird in there like some of our, our other plots that yeah. come out of nowhere with like, you know, all kinds of weird shit that never shows up in the movie. I know. Yeah, you just want to go in and rewrite them and fix them half the time. <laughs> so before we jump into the plot walkthrough here, I have a little game. Like I said, I was trying to come up with one. And after the F-bomb failed miserably, I was like, you know what else is iconic about this movie and about Eddie Murphy? I think His I know. His laugh. His yep. laugh. <laughs> so we're going to count how many times he laughs in this movie. But before we do, I want you, because I know you didn't keep track because I didn't prep you that I was going to ask you this. I want your guess. How many times do you think he laughs in this movie? Let's get your guess. Okay, I'm going to say, uh, I'm probably going to be off, but I'm going to say somewhere between 20 to 25 times. Give me a number. I'm going to go at 25. 25. Okay, I've written it down. It's in stone. She is not kidding. I literally watched her as she was chiseling it in stone. <laughs> here we go let's jump in our movie begins with studio credits on a black screen we see jerry bruckheimer producer and i went oh my god because <laughs> again you totally forget right there's no sound and then all of a sudden you can kind of hear music slowly creeping up to a crescendo and then it hits and we get wide shot of city and boom title card beverly hills cop right at you right as the music starts and I wrote down some of the songs because the soundtrack for the time, it's a time capsule, but it works so well with the movie. It We're does. opening on action shots of Detroit, Michigan, and the song The Heat Is On by Glenn Fry is our opening song. Do you love this song for the opening? I do. It's one of these movies, one of those movies that like every song that comes on, I'm just like, I, I'm like that meme of um, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, where he's like, you know, like the martini and like pointing out, it's like, that's, that's literally me watching that. I'm like, oh shit, I know that song. I love that song. <laughs> so the credits end. We zoom in on a back alley sneaky transaction happening in a big shady truck here. Looks like it's full of cigarette boxes. And Eddie Murphy's character is there making a deal with two guys who are buyers for his assumed stolen goods. And from what I could see right away was boxes marked 
Paul Mall and Lucky Strike. <laughs> I didn't see the Lucky Strike because I heard him mention Lucky Strike, but all I saw was Paul Mall boxes and I had to stop and think. I was like, what? they are separate cigarettes, right? They're in there. Okay, I because did, I didn't see them because I just saw Paul Mall and I was like, okay. Black market cigarettes. No, they're um <laughs> they're in there because later when he's fallen and the boxes are falling all over him, there's a whole bunch of them that say Lucky Strike as well. Uh, okay, because yeah, I, okay. I, I saw like when right. he opened it and I was like, oh, okay. I don't remember Lucky Strikes. Like I remember going to the grocery store, uh, like, you know, like convenience stores or whatever, looking at all the cigarettes in the background and always see Marlboro, Camel, occasionally see Paul Mall, never saw Lucky Strike. So to me, this is like the unicorn of cigarettes. <laughs> uh, I never paid attention to any of that when I was young because I wasn't a smoker and have never been. So I don't know really cigarette brands, but I do remember specifically when he's falling down in the truck, they're falling right on his head and it says Lucky Strike. Um, all right. So we're in this scene here. One of the guys is trying to stiff Eddie Murphy's character by only giving him 2000 instead of 5000 that they supposedly agreed upon ahead of time. And we get a really funny bit here of Eddie doing a read my lips thing. I can see you laughing. I just thinking the, about it. I remember the scene. I just like I, I could just picture in my mind like like him doing that. It's like an accent or something. It's like just the way that he's talking while he's doing that, that character. It's just uh it's just hilarious. Like I can uh Yeah, I laughed so much more than I thought I would re-watching this, even at the stuff that doesn't quite hold up politically incorrect stuff as you would say now um for the time was totally you know no problem i still laughed at all of it i was like oh my god eddie murphy's just hilarious like content or not he's the way he delivers his stuff is so funny he's just like you, you saw like this is when he was at the top of his game like he was at the top of the world of like stand-up comedy all the stuff is coming out he's got these hidden movies snl SNL uh I mean like well, yeah. oh god I remember that that season of SNL I, I didn't even grow up watching it I watched it in reruns on Comedy Central oh yes yeah you remember that really oh yeah but I mean I mainly That's remember old. him uh because especially like his skit with uh save Larry the lobster I mean that was just like one of my favorite things so uh the guys get annoyed that the two grand isn't gonna fly and so they're starting to tell him just take them and smoke them yourself <laughs> They're like, too bad. That's all you get is two grand and we'll just get you later. And that tells me right there that that this is just, this is when I realized these are black market cigarettes, which was so weird to me. Like, what is the deal? Because he makes it a point to point out they've got the federal stamp on them and they're like legit real cigarettes. And I'm like, was there a market for black market cigarettes in the mid 80s? I mean. Yeah, I always wondered, like, was this one of those things that Hollywood made up? As like, like, this is this is not a real thing that's happening out there. Uh, they're just like, oh, well, we need something that can be black market. You know what? You know what, Jerry? Let's go with cigarettes. Cigarettes is perfect. Kids love cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, Eddie's even like the kids. These are popular with the kids. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> kids love cigarettes. So now two cops in a police car, they roll up and basically ruin this uh, bust or sale that he's trying to do. And one of the cops says he thinks he recognizes Eddie Murphy. And he says, no, that's not me. I'm from Buffalo. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what? It was so funny. I mean, he doesn't say a name or anything. He just goes, nope, not me. So he grabs onto these chains that are hanging there and dangling on the wall. And then the other guy just goes, let's get the hell out of here and starts running up to the front of the truck. And I'm thinking he's going to hop in the cab because his other buddy is in, ready to drive away. They just start taking off in the truck without him. 
And of course, we get another song to go with this action sequence. The Pointer Sisters song, Neutron Dance, starts to play. It is the perfect song with like the beats beat wise to go with the action driving scene like this. It still holds up. I love it. I, I love the music choices are perfect. Like at the exact moment that they start playing, you're just like this. This is classic. I mean, this movie hits all the 80s tropes that make it so iconic. And I love that, like within the first like five, 10 minutes of the movie, basically five minutes of the movie, you get the classic 80s car chase scene. Right. The movie starts off with that fun little setup and then we get right into an action beat and then right into uh, the driving force of what's going to happen in the movie. It's like boom, boom, boom. This movie doesn't drag. No, and it's 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 like a great car chase scene too because it's not like your typical 80s action film. Like if this would have been a Stallone movie, there would have been explosions everywhere, guns and just like batshit crazy kind of thing. This is action, but comedy because as you're saying... Eddie flying in and out of the truck, hanging on by, you know, by dear life. It's just, you're cracking up as all this shit's going on. Oh, he's flung all around. And uh, <laughs> they're going through traffic. The cops are chasing. And this truck is hitting everything in its way. Like, he doesn't give two shits. <laughs> he is mowing everybody down. Watching some of those cars get demolished, I was just like, oh, my God, cars in the 80s, man. I, I always like hearing, like, the older cars are supposed to be, like, a lot stronger. This thing is smashing these things like they're freaking sardine cans. <laughs> Yeah, not in movies, they didn't hold up. No way. <laughs> so more cop cars join this chase. And can we talk about these cars for just a second? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> the lights on top of these cars look like they're something out of a kid's movie. They look so fake. Big dome looking things. And then the stickers on the top that show the numbers are some of them are peeling up. <laughs> they're not even on there flat. And the sticker on the side of the car says Detroit police. And it, it literally just looks like a big sticker. <laughs> They're it so looks... trashy. When I did the research on it, like they even said, like there's multiple versions of the cars. Like if you, like you really study it, you can see that like cars will swap out and it's like, they didn't do a great job editing this, but that's funny. At the same time, it's like those cars look horrible, but it yeah. works for this era in Detroit for some reason. <laughs> It's just like, you picture this is what the cops in Detroit were driving. Like, this is why they were so pissy. Like, I got to drive this piece of shit. <laughs> so the police set up a blockade at the end of a road. The truck gets stuck, of course, and crashes. And the guy that was driving gets out and runs off. Eddie Murphy's character is told to freeze by some cops who run up and pull their guns on him. And then one recognizes him and says, oh, we should have known it was you, Foley. And we're like, oh, okay. So he was undercover and didn't tell anybody if the cops are busting him and going oh wait a minute <laughs> so you already know so he's a little bit rogue there oh yeah to me I, I don't know if this is what they were going for because like i said i didn't see this when it came out i was too young i don't know if you did old shot oh i did not <laughs> we get it you're young um no i uh i didn't see this in theaters when it first came out no i saw it on vhs i'd be kind of curious of like with the promotion of the film did they like try to keep it a secret that he was a cop? Because I feel like when we came in watching it, you see it on the cover. Uh, if you go and watch, I, I believe like the trailer and stuff, blatantly obvious, he is a cop. So it's like, I feel like that opening scene is cool as it is. Like everyone watching this, like we already know he's a cop. Like, I don't know why there's no big secret here. Yeah. So we learn his name is Axel Foley. And uh, this might be the first time we get a little sample when he's going into the police station of his theme called Axel F, 
and everybody knows that music. And I'm going to take a moment here in the show to insert a little clip of it. So everybody who doesn't know what we're talking about will know. And if you do know, you get a treat because this is <laughs> a fun little song, right? Axel F, the little da, 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 da music. Oh, yeah. They they use it so well and so much, but I never get sick of it throughout all the movies. I never get sick of hearing Axel F. This is one of the few songs that I can listen to on repeat over and over and over again. And I, when I say few, I mean like off the top of my head, I can name two and it's Axel F and it's the Snoopy Christmas song. Those are the only two songs <laughs> that like I can literally listen to on repeat consistently. That's so random. <laughs> well, it's just because they're so upbeat. Uh, it's I mean, because like, okay. like okay, okay, the Snoopy Christmas song. You if you take away, if you didn't know they played it during Christmas, if you just listened to it, it is a classic jazz song. The piano, True. everything going on, it is just a well-produced, well-made song, and it's just it leaves you wanting more. And I feel like Axel F is the same way. It's so it's the '80s synth uh, synthesized. Pardon my, I cannot say anything Syn like synthesized. Thank you. I cannot pronounce it. Okay, it's like Worcestershire. I can't say it. The W sauce. <laughs> the W sauce. <laughs> That's what I call it. Yeah, because you try and every time you go to the restaurant, you try and like order it, and like the people think you're having a stroke. They're like, "Ma'am, are you okay? Are can you?" Like... <laughs> I know. I'm old enough now that we should be concerned about that. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> The other thing about Axel F that I just throw out there because it's funny and we're talking about random stuff. When I was a teenager, I got a keyboard, a big old Casio keyboard, like for one of my birthdays or Christmas or something. And that's the first thing I learned how to play was Axel F. The da 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 because you could figure it out really easy on a keyboard on a Casio. <laughs> Second thing I learned was "Take on Me" by Aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay, now that one's a little bit more challenging, but I feel like Axel F is kind of like. Kind of like the Halloween theme. It's so basic that you can easily learn it on piano if you want to play it anytime. Yeah, it's not Jaws basic, but it's pretty damn close. Yeah, it, it's it's like there, there's a few songs out there that are so simple to play that I feel like if you're trying to learn how to piano, uh, play the piano, not piano. I, I don't think anyone can actually piano, but you know. <laughs> uh, but like if you're learning to play, you can like learn from those songs and then just kind of progress to like you know Beethoven and such. Yeah, <laughs> right. Easy peasy. Yeah. So Axel's back at the station now. He is immediately greeted by another officer who I'm guessing is maybe his partner or just a good friend or, or both named Jeff, Jeffrey. And this is Paul Reiser, who, again, rising comedian, not in this enough. We needed more Paul Reiser. I, I was disappointed that, yeah, we did not get to see him enough because I felt like in the few minutes that we see the two of them together, they played off of each other really well. And they would make a great buddy cop movie. Right. So he's running around through the station and Jeff is following him, <laughs> trying to talk to him and tell him about Inspector Todd. His boss is looking for him and he's in trouble and everybody knows about the bus gone south, blah, blah, blah. Eventually, they wind up in this restroom locker room situation that they have here at the police station. And everybody's giving him shit and ribbing him because they all know how bad he screwed up. He tries to get Jeff to stop talking to him and we get another little random funny bit where he goes, I am not listening to you. And he puts his fingers in his ears 
and starts going, I am not listening to Jeffrey. La, 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 la. <laughs> like he's 10. <laughs> uh, and it works. So like every time you see it coming, you're just like, you just start laughing because he's just like, like, what the hell is he doing? And it's, I don't know about you, but like multiple times in this movie when he's doing this stuff, I'm like, how the hell did you become a cop? I asked myself that the whole entire time because we learn um, shortly his backstory is he wasn't, he was into bad things when he was a kid or juvenile or in his twenties and then became a cop. And I'm like, wow, is that how that works? <laughs> I feel like in Hollywood, I don't know in reality, but I feel like in Hollywood, they feel like the best backstory is we will take a former criminal and make him a cop because that's going to make him a better cop because he's going to know how criminals think. And then you just sit back and you're like, oh, Hollywood, you're genius. <laughs> <laughs> that actually would track why he ends up making such a good detective through his run here, because he can think how they think. See, I'm not just another pretty face. You're not. You're coming through. <laughs> so now we get to meet his boss, Inspector Todd, and that's Gilbert R. Hill. This man has rusting asshole face. He just <laughs> yes. walks in and looks pissed did, did you look him up at all i didn't look up any credits or anything no did you uh credits no but i i found out about his backstory apparently uh martin breast met him while visiting detroit to do research uh and scouting locations for the film he used to be a homicide detective for the detroit police department so i kind of feel like that's why he's got that resting bitch face and or asshole face and why he comes off like such a like the perfect badass asshole boss cop because he actually was one. Oh my god that makes so much sense yeah because he's super convincing he is like of all the cops in the entire movie he is the only one that i was like he could have been a cop and then you learn oh shit he was a cop he was a cop and he uses so many f-bombs he's the reason i lost count i lost count i was like are you kidding me at one point, I was expecting him, like, he would be the perfect person to pull off that skit I've always wanted to see on live television of, like, hearing someone cuss and, like, you just be like, hey, watch your fucking mouth, motherfucker. I'm not fucking here to hear you fucking cuss, you motherfucking piece of shit. <laughs> he'd be good for that. He could pull that off beautifully. He would do it, like, such a straight face, and you'd be like, oh, wow, I'm in trouble. <laughs> well, what's funny to me is people who didn't grow up watching these movies from the 80s in the 80s don't understand that this was the norm for a lot of people kids of every generation always think it's cool when they can finally cuss and say their first cuss words and it's such a big deal and they feel so grown up but literally in the 80s everybody was saying curse words all the time and i grew up in southern california and so it was curse words mixed with surfer slang and southern california slang rad awesome totally bodacious tubular all the weird shit that we said on the west coast of southern california so it would be that's fucking rad all the time so when this movie came out it wasn't shocking that every other word was an f-bomb it really wasn't so it's really funny to revisit it now with the mentality that everyone's super sensitive about everything i'm like can you imagine being like 15 now and seeing this for the first time, that would be it crazy would, to me. It would blow your mind, especially because, yes, yeah, like I, I remember growing up and on the playground, uh, elementary school, 
we were dropping f-bombs we were like like we would do it like when the teachers weren't around like once the teacher was walking away we were kind of like whispering each other like wait till she goes wait till she goes wait till she goes then she goes like dude fuck you man (laughs) (laughs) i want your fucking pb and j for lunch man straight (laughs) fuck it i can just picture that that's so funny so his boss here comes in dropping f-bombs left and right complaining about how he just had his ass chewed out by his superiors he had his ass chewed out so much that he doesn't have any ass left. <laughs> that is hysterical to me, the way he says it. Straight-faced. And then, and then with, with Axel coming back, they're like, boss, that's not true. You still got some ass left. It's just like, what the? <laughs> they didn't chew all your ass. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's so good. But I like he tells Axel, I'm done dealing with you, doing shit without authorization. You do it one more time and you're out, you're done. And then Axel joking the entire time, trying to like laugh it all off and then ends it on that little, oh, they didn't get all your ass, you know, bit trying to just make light of the whole thing. And it's like, do you understand how much trouble you're actually in? Like, did that sink in at all? I, I kind of feel like there's in his mind, he's never going to get fired. Like he can, he's one of those people, like you, everyone works with that guy or went to school with that kid who takes the whole class clown job clown to a whole new level of like constantly pushing the limits with the boss and like you're like you're gonna get fired like no I'm not I'm not gonna get fired I see what you're saying and I and I agree with you because I feel like even though this time it went south and not well I feel like he's probably the kind of cop where things usually go his way enough times that he thinks he can skate on the thin ice because he does get results most of the time with his rogue behavior yeah He's gifted. He's like a gifted cop. And he then he knows he's the best, which is always the worst. Like when you're cocky and you know it, <laughs> you know, you can go because you see that in professional wrestling all the time. Like there's that guy that comes in is like he knows he's the best thing in the world. He can do anything he wants. And then you're just sitting back like, oh, this guy's an asshole. <laughs> I like how you're all he knows he's the best. He can do the worst because <laughs> he's fine. <laughs> it's true. So he gets off work now. He goes up to his apartment and his front door is unlocked, which is super sketchy in any neighborhood, but it seems real sketchy here where he lives. He can hear noises inside. So he pulls his gun and goes in. He sees it's somebody he knows. And we get the first of his trademark laughter. Big old Eddie laugh right here. Number one. So it turns out that this is his buddy, Mikey, and that's James Russo. I didn't look up his filmography, but I so want to now after re-watching this because he's such a delight in this and he's not in it but a minute, but he's memorable. He's so good. He's got a really familiar face. Like I have seen him in stuff before. Well, we'll have to look him up when we're done. Yeah, because I'm really curious now of like he like I've seen him. Like there's a few people in the in this movie that I've seen in multiple things before. So he says he's uh, been out of jail for six months now. And of course, Axel's like, why didn't you come see me? He goes, well, I went to California. He was out there, got a job. And he brought back a stack of Deutschmark bearer bonds that are obviously stolen. And Axel's like, don't tell me. I don't want to (laughs) know. I'm a cop. Now, before we go any further, did you have the same feeling that I had when he goes in? He sees Mikey there in front of the fridge, eating with the fucking fridge door open. 
like for like for no like just sitting in front of the fridge with the door open for no other reason just to like i don't know cool his ass off or because it's just easier to turn around and grab whatever it is you want out of the fridge. like i don't know i've never done that before one wherever i sit the fridge is at least like five ten feet away from me but i still feel like even if it's right behind me i'm not just going to sit there with the fridge door open like that just seems so <laughs> what the hell so two things <laughs> number one I was cringing so hard, I couldn't sit still. I had the EBs, I was itching. I was like, shut the door, <laughs> shut the door. That bothered me so bad, my OCD was going crazy. Okay, yeah, I saw. I was like, no, what are you doing? But B, I have a fridge now, a newer model, because I was blessed enough to be able to upgrade my fridge uh, in the last couple of years. It actually beeps at you, ding, 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 if you leave it open more than however many seconds. So you can't sit there with it open because it would drive you bananas listening to the bong, 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 bong for 10 minutes telling you to shut the damn door. So that's what they needed on these old fridges, see, was that little alarm to tell you to shut the door. That, that would work. But at the same time, like if I had that fridge, that would piss me off because it takes me a while sometimes to figure out what I want. Like, you know, do I want pickles? Do I want cottage cheese? Do I want some leftover <laughs> pie? My fridge has got all kinds of stuff in there. What do I want? I swear to God, it's a guy thing because my husband does the same fucking thing. He'll stand there and I'll be out in the other room and I'll hear ding, ding, ding. And I'll get up and go look. And he's just standing there looking, like trying to figure out what he wants. Because I'll be like, what are you looking for? Let me help you. I know where everything is. <laughs> and he's like, "It's that's not it. I just don't know what I want. <laughs> this, is why, this is why when you go to the grocery store, you will see the difference between men and women. Women will go in. They know what they want. They will grab it. They may look at the back of the packaging to find like calories or whatever, like that kind of stuff, and then put it in. Guys will stand in front of a soup aisle for 25 minutes because the cho the <laughs> amount of choices just broke our brain. What the fuck are we gonna get? Like I don't I don't know at this point. I'm like, what? what do you, there's new soups coming out every other week. Like I have no idea what to do here. <laughs> Too many choices fries your brain. <laughs> oh we my have God. limited capacity. <laughs> I love it. All right. So in this moment, I, I'm not remembering the rest of the movie when I'm rewatching here because it's been so many years. And I'm thinking to myself in this moment, that is so weird that a criminal who's been in jail and is doing criminal behavior now that he's out and he's buddies with a cop. That just seemed super weird to me because we don't know Axel's backstory yet. Yeah, super weird. I was like, wow, yeah, this is a big risk to be like, look, I got stolen bearer bonds. Here you go. I mean, it's been so long since I've seen it, like for the first time. So I can't remember if I had the same feeling now going in. I'm like, you know, oh, OK, yeah, I, you know, buddies. I, I think I probably would have figured out going off of his demeanor, the way that he acts is like, OK, maybe they were childhood friends growing up and they were kind of like hoodlums or something together. So they go out together to a bar to shoot pool and talk about what's been going on. And Mikey tells him he's been in Beverly Hills working as a security guard for a friend of theirs, a mutual friend named Jenny Summers who is the manager of an upscale art gallery, and he tells Axel the name of it. And during this bar scene, we get five separate occasions where Eddie laughs. Five more. We are at six right now? I didn't keep a tally throughout the whole thing. I have the tally at the end. But yeah, that would be six at this moment. Yeah. Okay. So they have some drinks and some heart-to-hearts, and we learn that Mikey used to boost cars with Axel before he became a police officer. We learn Axel was not always on the right side of the law. And when he asks Mikey, how come he did time um, and didn't didn't turn him in? How come he took the jail sentence and didn't turn Axel in? 
he says, well, I went to state school. And Axel points out, well, that's as good as jail. You know, when you're 15, it might as well be jail. And it's so sweet that Mikey says, you really don't know why I did that for you? And Axel's like, no. And he's like, because I love you, man. And it's such a sweet, like, you can tell they're lifer best friends, like, in it totally. Yeah. And I thought I, thought I read when I was doing the research that at one point they wanted to cut that line out. And uh, uh, Russo, like, fought to keep it in. Like, he, he thought, like, no, this seems like a good scene. We should keep it in. I'm glad he fought to keep it in because it doesn't make any sense for the rest of the movie if there isn't that deep emotional connection. Because you said with Stallone they were going to be brothers, which is an instant connection. No matter how you feel about your brother, they're your fucking brother. This is his best friend. And uh, spoiler alert, in a few minutes we're going to discuss he gets killed. And that is the driving force for the entire rest of the movie, the plot. So there has to be that deep connection. We have to know that Axel is... In this, hell-bent, 100%, has to avenge his buddy's death. So, Russo was right to fight for that line because it matters. It really does, because, yeah, I, I didn't even think about it, but it, 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 that is the driving force of the whole, whole movie. I, I think you kind of forget that at times because you get so sucked into the humor and all the yeah. stuff that Axel's doing that you forget that there's actually a point to everything that's going on in this movie. It's a deep, deep bromance, best friend thing, and it's super cool and super important. So, Mike is drunk. And Axel's going to take him back to his apartment. Outside the door, we get this funny little scene. Two more quick signature laughs from Axel here as he tries to keep a very drunk Mikey from falling down. <laughs> I feel like a lot of us have been in that situation where we're, we're either we're the drunk one trying not to fall down or we're trying to keep someone from falling down. 100%. So they suddenly get jumped by two people from off screen. One of them, I don't know if you knew this right away, I think he came up in another episode and you were like, I didn't watch Breaking Bad, but Jonathan Banks playing Zach, the villain, he was Mike on Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. And when he pops up in these movies from the 80s and he's got a full head of hair, I always have to double look. I'm like, wait a minute, is that him? He looks so different on Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Okay, that's I was trying to place where I knew him from. I mean, I've never seen those shows, but that is, I've seen the commercials enough to know, okay, that's where I know him from. All I will say is he is one of the ugliest henchmen I have ever seen in my entire life. I, I think I've used this line before, but it, it bears repeating of like, he's got a face that only a mother can love, but I'm pretty sure that she put it up for an adoption. <laughs> he is an interesting looking fellow even as an older man the first time i ever saw him on breaking bad which came first i said oh my god he looks like a human equivalent of a turtle because <laughs> he's also got those really um katie holmes eyes where they like droop on the outer part of his eye so he always looks like he's sad mad or upset all the time because just of how his eyes are he can't do anything about it <laughs> that's yeah. just the way they are Go, it goes really well with his penis notes because it looks like he's got a penis on his face. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh, just... we are ripping this poor man apart. He, I'm sure he's a lovely man and uh, he's a fantastic I, actor. He, he is a great actor. And I, in all honesty, he is one of those people that I feel like he got better looking as he got older. He grew into his face. Like in this, yes. he just looks awkward. He looks weird. Uh, but as he got older, it's like, oh, okay, now you're seeing like the menacing look. And he just, you know, he looks like a good looking bad guy. So they knock out Axel so he doesn't get to see the rest of what happens. They punch Mikey and they grab him and they, they're like, hey, uh, what happened to the bearer bonds? And he's like, I have them. I swear to God, 
I'll give them to you. I'm so sorry. I'll never do anything like this again. And he's apologizing like profusely. He's suddenly very sober. <laughs> Mikey is. Well, I mean, like if, if two hoodlums come out of nowhere and you know they're probably like professional hitmen, I would sober up pretty damn quickly too. I'd be like, oh shit, okay. I, I probably just pissed all of the beer out of my system. So they end up shooting Mikey. They knock him to the floor and shoot him in the back of the head, execution style, bam, bam, and, and, and leave him on the floor next to Axel and then they leave. I will say like watching it, it's a pretty tame death for, I mean, because you don't really see anything. Like there's no blood. You don't see like, you know, nowadays you do a scene like that. You're going to see like his eyeball pop out and brain splatter the whole hallway and stuff. So it's kind of a tame death. But at the same time, the way that they do it is really brutal with the pulling the hair and then the, just the two quick pops and stuff. And it's like uh, even like the slow, like those sudden jerks that the actor does when he gets shot. It makes it feel really, really brutal. I was like, oh, shit, this is. I felt for Mikey. I was like, damn, dude. Like, what the hell did you do to deserve that? Yeah, it's cruel and gritty the way it's shot, and it feels super real. Yeah, it's it's tough. That was was such a good scene. So then we cut to police presence outside, and Axel is nursing the wound on his head, and his boss tells him, Inspector Todd says, go to the hospital, have that bump checked out. And uh, Axel, he looks so sad here, because it's his, you know, his best friend. He tells the chief he knows this case has gone to somebody else named Rand who's going to take the lead on it. And the chief says, it's Rand's case and you need to just go to the hospital and don't go anywhere near this case. (laughs) It's like like he already knows, you know. So Axel says this was a friend of his. It means a lot to him. And then the chief rattles off a couple of reasons why it's not a good idea for him to bring up that this was his friend. (laughs) Being a criminal is one of them. (laughs) There's a part of me that wants to be like, Dude, fuck you, man. That's my friend. You shouldn't be, you know, like I'm 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 hurting here. But the other part, I'm kind of like, I'm I'm on the side of Todd. I'm like, yeah, these are a lot of good points. I mean, this is like like I can see like eternal affairs looking at this as a very suspicious uh incident. Right? Me too. I was thinking that. So Axel says, uh, you know, I've got some vacation time coming and I want to take it right now. And of course, the chief is immediately on to him and says, Fine, take your vacation, but if you go anywhere near this case. It's going to basically turn into a permanent vacation. <laughs> I like that he's just like immediately sniffs out what Axel's doing. I would love to have seen a spinoff of just about Inspector Todd just being the badass cop that he is. There's like a story there of like, how did he become such a hard ass? So we cut to beautiful Beverly Hills. We see Axel driving down the sunny streets in his old beater car. <laughs> <laughs> we're supposed to believe and again it's a movie so fine that he drove across country that car made it all the way across country (laughs) especially because like earlier yeah it's like earlier before we even met mikey he tries to park and the the damn car is about to roll down the hill and he's got to hop back in to stop it no way he drove this all the way across country no way no i I pushed it all the way across country maybe but drove it no So it's obviously, you know, again, fish out of water, sore thumb, clearly doesn't fit in in Beverly Hills. We get more soundtrack fitting to this upbeat, sunny scene. Uh, It's Stir It Up by Miss Patti LaBelle. Goes very well with the scene. So during this drive, we get another Eddie Murphy laugh because he pulls alongside another much nicer car. And there's a chick in the passenger seat, like mockingly checking him out. (laughs) And then they laugh and drive off. I couldn't tell if he if he actually thought she was checking him out or if he knew and he was just like playing along. <laughs> I think it's the latter. Yeah. So he goes to a hotel near Rodeo Drive 
and clearly fish out of water because he just assumes it's not going to be expensive, which cracks me up because anything in Beverly Hills is going to be expensive, right? Like it's Beverly Hills. Oh, yeah. But he asked the valet guy out front, is this expensive? And the guy's like, not for Beverly Hills. Really, bro? You're going to trust that? How come you're not going to a Motel 6? <laughs> that is a good point. Like, you just broke this entire movie of, like, he could have done this investigation so much easier with working out of a Motel 6. Yeah, and he has no basis of comparison for the guy to tell him, oh, this is cheap for Beverly Hills. How does Axel fucking know? He doesn't know what's cheap in Beverly Hills. Like, So anyway, he approaches the front desk. And I know I have a clip of this, so I will insert it for the listeners because this bit cracks me up. I was shocked, again, that he throws the N-word out there, but it's acceptable for him to do it because he is a Black man. So this rant is hysterical to me. It's like people that would be shocked by it, I feel like it's like you don't know his comedy style. Like if you've ever seen an Eddie Murphy special. If you've never seen Delirious. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, like you watch Delirious and you automatically know like this movie is tame for Eddie Murphy. Oh, yeah. So he overhears at the front desk that there is nothing available because the woman on the phone is telling somebody they're out of rooms. So he very quickly concocts this plan in his head of what he's going to do. So as soon as she hangs up, he's like, oh, a reservation for Axel Foley. And as soon as she says there's nothing, he's like, oh, uh, check Rolling Stone magazines, Axel Foley. (laughs) I was like, oh, that's so fucking smart. (laughs) But of course, there's no room available under that name either because he did not make a reservation. So he goes on this big loud rant, big loud rant, which, like I said, I think is absolutely hilarious still. And I'll insert it so you guys can hear what he says word for word. But it's basically this whole thing about Michael Jackson and he's a reporter and he knows that they're not giving him a room because he's a black man, basically, and he uses the N-word. Big loud scene makes a huge scene. So immediately the manager hears this and comes jumping up to the desk and he's like, oh, sir, yes, we have a room. We have a room for you. <laughs> so this hotel is supposed to be the Beverly Palm Hotel. He's like, yeah, we. I'll, I'll give you a suite, but I'm only going to charge you the single room rate. And Axel's like, oh, I appreciate that. Uh, how much is that? And he's all 235 a night. And there's this long pause. <laughs> Where Axel is stunned that that is the single room rate at this place. I literally he, wrote that in in my notes. Was the look on his face when he learns the price is just that that shock of like what the hell? Yes, and it's a nice long pause, like a good comedy beat. And he's like, "That's fine." And if Michael calls, <laughs> tell him what room I'm in. <laughs> May I help you? Yes, you have a reservation for an Axel Foley. Well, let's see. I'm sorry, I don't see anything under that name. Uh, check. Rolling Stone Magazine's Axel Foley. That's what it is. <laughs> no, no Rolling Stone, no Axel Foley. I'm sorry, sir. Oh, that's all right. You guys probably just made some kind of mistake with reservations. Why don't you just give me another room now go up and go to sleep? I'm sorry, sir, but there are no rooms available. Don't you think I realize what's going on here, miss? Who do you think I am, huh? Don't you think I know that if I was some hot shot from out of town that pulled inside here and you guys made a reservation mistake, I'd be the first one to get a room and I'd be upstairs relaxing right now. But I'm not some hot shot from out of town. I'm a small reporter from Rolling Stone magazine that's in town to do an exclusive interview with Michael Jackson that's going to be picked up by every major magazine in the country and was going to call the article, Michael Jackson is sitting on top of the world, but now I think I might as well just call it Michael Jackson can sit on top of the world just as long as he doesn't sit in the Beverly Palm Hotel because there's no niggas allowed in there. Excuse me, sir. It seems that we do have a a last-minute cancellation. There is a room available. It's a suite 
but uh, I'll only charge you the single room rate. Thank you. I'm sorry I got upset. It's probably from jet lag or something. I'm very tired. I understand, What's sir. What's the rate, anyway? Uh, that'll be $235 a night, sir. Oh, so oh, I no. did look it up. Like I said, this was the Beverly Palm in the movie, but the actual hotel is called the Millennium Baltimore or the Bilt, I'm sorry, Millennium Biltmore or the Biltmore of Los Angeles. The place is still looks the same. It's gorgeous and it's expensive. It's in Beverly Hills. So I looked up the deluxe rooms are only $296 a night. Suites are only a little over $500 current day. So I'm like $235 a night for the single room rate back then. 296 now for a, a a deluxe room that's not a big price jump in decades decades no. i'm assuming because they're trying to play it off like it's a fancier hotel so they upped the, the actual price of what it was oh um, that's a good point that's a good point and did, did you catch during the rant when he mentioned the the interview he's going to do for michael jackson it was called michael jackson uh on top of the world yeah uh, when I looked that up, I guess they said that I don't know if he planned it or what or whatever, or whatever but at that time, he'd done an interview in Playboy. And it was basically kind of the same thing of like talking about how Eddie Murphy was on top of the world at the time. Almost like he kind of connected the two the two articles. Like, I don't know if like that was sitting in his brain was when he like ranted on it. Obviously, now that you say it, I didn't know that. But obviously, he drew from that. And it works. It's hilarious because he's yeah, you'll hear it in, in the clip, but yeah, talk about Michael Jackson sitting on top of the world. So Axel now is wandering down the street. He's got a piece of paper in his hand, so we know he's on a mission to go find Jenny or this gallery. And Stir It Up is still playing now again, which I thought was a weird choice for this scene. But they're just continuing the same music, I guess, from previous to the hotel. He's walking down the street. And I laughed so much at this because we were just talking about Delirious. Yep. And Michael Jackson, he passes by and I have, I have to, in my head, this is what happened. This is my reality. The costumer for the scene was like, I know what we're going to do. We're going to put these two people in these leather outfits. One is all black with red accents. One is red with black accents. They look exactly like Michael Jackson thriller or like similar to the outfit Eddie Murphy wore in Delirious, his standup that was done before this movie. We're going to put these people in these outfits and we're going to send them and we're not going to tell Eddie and we're just going to send them down the street. In my mind, that's what happened because he has a genuine hysterical reaction to these people where we get another laugh from Mr. Murphy, uh, but I, he, he doubles I, over and is like genuinely laughing at this. Oh, uh, seriously, you are like living in my fucking head right now because I said the same exact thing. Because I said I've all ever since I watched this movie the first time, and after I after I'd seen Delirious and stuff, I always wondered if that was ad libbed, if they just like like did that to like mess with him on purpose. In, yes, in my mind, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just keep with that because we both thought the same thing. So Axel goes to the art gallery. Clearly, he's located it. Uh, Mikey had given him the name. So he's looking for Jenny Summers. This is where we meet Serge, as Axel calls him, or Serge. This is Bronson Pinchot. He's the art gallery, I, I guess, right-hand man of Jenny Summers or, or something, assistant manager. But here's the thing I read in, uh, not read, um, learned by watching the casting documentary. Bronson is a friend of the casting director, and she had to pester him several times. Please come just be in this movie. I have a little part for you. It's perfect for you. Can you please just make time? Several times had to pester him and he kept saying no. And then he finally agreed and his, his schedule cleared up. 
and he came out and it was him and this other guy and uh, Bronson's part was smaller but they liked what they saw him doing with the character. He created this character of Serge and the way he talks and stuff and his mannerisms himself. And they liked it so much, they swapped the parts. They cut the other guy's part down and made his part bigger. I argue not big enough because he's only in two scenes in this movie. And the second one, he's barely in it, the, the scene. So I have pretty much the whole clip of this conversation, which I'm going to throw in because it's too funny not to. <laughs> the way he screws up Axel's name. I love it. And, and I, I don't know if you saw that. They might not have put it in the, the thing that you watched, but they said that um, the accent that he got, he got from uh, a hairdresser that you know, he was working with or whatever when they were doing like the in the makeup and the hair and all that stuff. Uh, it was even like one of the, I forget what the line was, but it was like the, the line that he uses in uh, when he's talking to Axel. That actually came from her as well. And so it's like he uses the accent and the line. And that's kind of where he came up with this character, which I guess they said later inspired Valky. That that's kind of where Valky kind of came from was all of this as well. So like this little thing. And from this hairdresser, this actor's career basically blows up. Wow. I hope he wrote her a big fat check when Perfect Strangers was a hit. Oh, I hope so. God, now I want to go back and watch Perfect Strangers. So Axel sees this giant art piece, which is a, like a, this weird white dining room table with mannequins with no heads. And then there's heads on plates spinning, <laughs> spinning around. It's the most bizarre, crazy shit. And you totally expect these wacky, rich Californians to have shit like this. And Serge, Serge, is so funny the way he's asking like, why are you here and what's your name? And he says, oh, I'm Axel. I'm here to see Jenny. And he goes, what is this portaining? And he's like, I'm sorry, what did you say? <laughs> he's all portaining, meaning, regarding. And then he's like, oh, regarding. Okay. <laughs> like, it's just so funny. My favorite thing, though, I will say about the Bronson stuff is right when, when Axel's standing there, just minding his business, looking at this art piece and Serge walks up to him. And Axel says, hi. That's the first thing he says, right? Serge goes, I'm fine. And then he starts talking. <laughs> and I'm like, how many times have you done that in real life? Like at the grocery store, the opposite, where you expect somebody to say, have a nice day. You too. Oh, thank you. But that's not what gets said. They'll be like, see you later. And you're like, you too. And you walk off. And it's, <laughs> that was what it reminded me of. He's all, hi. Oh, I'm fine. <laughs> It, I'm it's, like, wow, it's because, Serge doesn't get it. <laughs> it. It's because like you get you get kind of lost in your thoughts sometimes because that literally that happened to me when I was working at um, uh, retail for a while and it was Mother's Day and I'm checking this woman out and uh, like not checking her out, checking her out, but like, you know, ringing her up. Cashier, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I'm putting everything in the bag and doing all this stuff and these, this woman and the woman behind her talking about Mother's Day and all this stuff that's going on. And I give the woman her bag and her change and she's leaving. The woman behind her says, oh, have a nice Mother's Day. And I instinctively went back with, oh, you too. And like it immediately clicked in my mind. I was like, wait a second. This doesn't work, does it? She wasn't talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So Serge calls over his assistant to go get Jenny. And there's a funny little bit with him trying to get Axel's name, like I said. And <laughs> we find out that this art piece sells for $130,000 and Axel just get the fuck out of here. And Serge is like, no, 
I cannot because it's serious. <laughs> and they do that a couple times. It's so funny. Now, I, I had a total Mandela effect with this movie because I could have swore every time I watched this movie, I could swear when the scene comes up, I could swear Serge says, no, I will not get the fuck out of here. But he never says it. So I'm always waiting for that line to happen. But it never happens. And I swear I saw it. So that that is like my Mandela effect. So I'm going to play the clip for everybody. But yeah, yeah, he doesn't say that. He just goes, oh, I cannot. It's so funny. And again, his reaction is what you would expect it to be. They're just having fun and bantering. He's not shocked or offended that Axel says the F word to him in this high class gallery in Beverly Hills because everybody was talking like that. <laughs> that is why he is not shocked when he says it twice to him, the F word. I'm fine. My name is Serge, and how can I help you? Um, yeah, I'm looking for Miss Jenny Summers. It's very busy today. Maybe you'll give me your name? My name is Axel Foley. And uh, what is pertaining? I didn't understand what you said. Pertaining, what it's meaning, regarding. Oh, what's it regarding? I'm an old acquaintance of hers. Don't I? One moment. Don't run and tell me, Summers, that uh, Mr. Ahmed Foley is here to no, see... Axel Foley. Axel. Ahmed, Ahwell, Axel. Foley is here to see her. These are old acquaintances. Donnie, this is covered this up. It's I'm like sorry. the breast of sorry. a dog to scrub for the customer. It's not sexy, it's animal. No, it's not sexy. Now, have you something to drink? A wine, a cocktail, a espresso? No, I'm fine, thank you. Let's make it myself right back there with a the little lemon twist. It's good. Try it. No, I'm, I'm fine. I see you look at this piece. Yeah, I was wondering how much something like this went for. $130,000. Get the fuck out of here! No, no, I cannot. It's serious because it's very important. Base. Have you ever sold one of these? Sell it yesterday to a collector. Get the fuck no, out of I'm here! serious. I said it myself. <laughs> so Jenny comes in to see Axel and they have this sweet little reunion and some banter. He teases her for getting old and we get another Eddie laugh. And then... He breaks the news to her that Mikey is dead and she lets Axel know that her boss is the one that hired Mikey. He was working in the gallery warehouse for Victor Maitland and it was a favor to her. So Mikey was the security guard. Then Jenny gets a phone call and she has to go. So we cut to Axel delivering flowers to Victor Maitland's office. <laughs> He's immediately... No beats are wasted. It's boom, boom, boom. And I like that he shows up with the, the flower delivery and the receptionist is like, well, everything stays here with me. You leave deliveries with me. And he's like, oh, no, no. Floral delivery is my life. I have to do it. And he goes and takes <laughs> them and just takes off and goes to the office himself. Like, no fucks given by Axel Foley, really ever. He storms into the office, sands flowers. And we see that the guy who killed Mikey Zach the henchman is sitting on the sofa in Victor's office. Dun, dun, dun. Victor's clearly behind it all. And Axel says, I have some questions about Michael Tandino. So <laughs> here's the thing. The guy playing Victor Maitland, Stephen Burkhoff, they really did this. It's a trope in the 80s. Lots of action movies did it where... They like the villain to be foreign, a foreigner. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Call this the dumb side of my brain. I don't get it. I don't know why. Is it because they can just come off more menacing somehow? Why was that a thing? 
I mean, we got Hans Gruber, we got this guy, we got the villain in Passenger 57, all the action movie bad guys were foreign. I think you're kind of right of like, it does make this character seem a little bit more suave and sophisticated. You're this uh, smooth talking, the accent villain come out with the business suit and it's like, okay, that's like Like a Bond villain. Yeah, it's like that. But I, I think also I could see a little bit like at that time in the 80s, there's a lot of patriotism going around. And so like everything that's not American is evil, is bad. I mean, you look at Red Dawn, you look at all oh, stuff. Okay. It's like everything that was that was not American, they were the bad guys. That makes sense. Yeah. Like I, I honestly expected him to be Russian. I really did. Because even the way he looked to me looked more Russian. He looked like a Russian Count Dracula. Okay, so the way he looked, I'm glad you brought that up. This man, God bless him, I'm sure he's a nice guy, has a mole right the smack in the middle of his forehead where his third eye would be. And it's so damn distracting. All I can do is stare at him and go, mole, 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 every time (laughs) he's on screen. I'm like, oh my God, he's got a mole. I can't listen to anything he's saying. It's so distracting. So I, I thought that was like his like twin trying to bust out of his head uh, or something. <laughs> Have it surgically removed. All right. So yeah, I was waiting for like a little alien antenna to like pop out of it and start moving around with an eyeball at the end of it. I don't know. All right. So they discuss how Mikey came to Detroit and got killed. And Victor asks what Axel's interest in this is. And he says, well, he was my best friend. And he asks Victor, what did Mikey do for you? Victor hits a hidden buzzer button under his desk and he says, well, this sounds like something for the Detroit police to me. So you need to leave. I'm not talking to you anymore. Five big guys in suits enter. Victor says, show Mr. Foley the door. And again, trope in these movies, they have to present and be in this environment and look like businessmen. So all these big old bodyguard henchmen guys are wearing nice suits, but they're big muscly just rough and tumble dudes ready to throw down, but they're in these nice suits. <laughs> that was also something in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, which is like, it's so obvious that like anyone who's ever been around a, a like professional businessman of some kind, they very rarely look like that. I mean, I feel like unless you're, unless you work for the WWE, you're not going to wear a business suit and look like that. You, you know? and your wrestling references. <laughs> well, I, well, I mean, like, like legitimately any sport, even football or something like that, they put on a business suit and I don't see those guys wearing a lot of business suits, but like when they do, they look like that. If you go down to your local bank, you're not going to see anyone that looks like that behind the counter. <laughs> So did this bother you? Because this bothered me. They drag Axel down and they throw him, alley-oop style, through a fucking giant window that is literally right next to the door. You couldn't just open the door? What? What bothered me wasn't wasn't that they didn't use the door because I figure, okay, these are assholes. This is what they're going to do. They're going to throw them out, out of the window to make a scene and hammer home the point. Don't come back here or we're going we're gonna to kill you. What bothered me was the fact that Okay, I'm like, at my biggest, I was like 300 pounds. If I go running into a window like that, I'm not going through it. I'm going to bounce off that window like I just ran into a fucking brick wall. Those things are (laughs) thick-ass glass. Like, I don't care who you are, unless you're Superman, you're not going through that shit. So breaking the window part, that alone was like, okay, Hollywood, you're stretching on this one. (laughs) On top of the fact he's laying in glass, going through this like basically plate glass window, his hands are on the ground and there is no blood 
this man would be cut head to toe in glass. I mean, like there would he would he would look like fucking Carrie at this point. Yeah, I agree. He not a drop of blood, no, no scratches, nothing. Ah, the beauty of breakaway glass, Hollywood. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> So a cop car rolls up and Axel tells these officers no less than three times that he was thrown through a window, but they pick him up for his concealed weapon and disturbing the peace. And they put him in the back of the car and drive him to the station. I, I love how he's like, like multiple times, like I said, rolling through the window and then the whole disturbing the peace. He's like, disturbing the peace? He's like, well, was like, well what is it? You get thrown out of a fucking car. Is that jaywalking? <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, it was mind-boggling, but it had to happen because he has to go to the station to meet our next key players. But I like that on the way to the station, he comments, and it's in the trailer, I think. He he says, uh, this is the nicest police car I've ever been in. This is nicer than my apartment. <laughs> and also, if you notice, these officers, they cast these really, really like model-looking actors who are super attractive to be the police force. Uh, they wanted them to be the police force of Beverly Hills to show the big contrast in what it's like between the real world and Beverly Hills. But they ended up not having everybody look like a supermodel because they didn't think that would really fly. So inside the police station, not everybody is a supermodel. But these two officers were the tall, blonde, built, you know, standard beauty. They came off like the stereotypical dumb California blonde. Yeah. Like just even the way they talked and the way that they like presented themselves. Like when he pulls out the gun from the back uh, of Foley and he's standing, it's almost like a fucking model pose. Like his hip is kind of twisted. His hand is up. <laughs> and I'm just like, are you voguing right now? Like what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> I like that you picked up on that. I didn't even pay attention to that. That's amazing. <laughs> After sitting in a cell for a while, Axel gets taken up to a desk in a really nice-looking station. This is a pristine, beautiful police station. He sits down with Sergeant Taggart, and that is John Ashton, and Detective Rosewood, Judge Reinhold. They ask why he failed to identify himself as a police officer when he was arrested. He asked, why did I even get arrested for being thrown out of a window in the first place? <laughs> Good point. They tell him that they believe local the local businessman who says that Axel broke in and started tearing up the place. Then he gets into a foul mouth altercation with Axel. He punches Axel in the stomach, Taggart does, and then gets called in to Lieutenant Bogomil's office. And this is their boss, and this is Ronnie Cox. What's the first movie that you think of whenever you see Ronnie Cox? Just curious. Outside of this, I think of Robocop. Robocop, right? Yes, me yeah. too. <laughs> I asked my husband the same thing. He's like, Robocop, duh. <laughs> yeah, he's like synonymous with Robocop. But I love him in this. He's so good. What was great was uh, when I was looking up, they said like up until this point, he was always cast as playing basically like the um, fatherly figure type characters and stuff like that. And then he, he got this. And then that's when they start transitioning to him getting those iconic roles like Robocop because of basically this movie. Good. I'm glad. He's still working to this day. Like, God bless him. He's still going. I love him. Uh, he's great. I mean, he, everyone in this movie just works so well together that you just, you, it's a movie you don't want to end because you love the interaction with these characters. The chemistry of everybody. Yeah. So Taggart and Bogomil come back out and Taggart apologizes to Axel for punching him. And Lieutenant Bogomil asks if Axel wants to press charges against that officer for assaulting him. He says, no, we 
Where I come from, we don't do that <laughs> against other officers. It, that, that's supposed to let us know that, in, and we hear of this a lot throughout the movie, in Beverly Hills, they play by the book. Always by the book. <laughs> so Bogomil tells Axel that he got off the phone with his boss, Inspector Todd, back in Detroit, and he wants to know what Axel is doing in California. Axel says he's on vacation. And he just went in that building to use the bathroom. Next thing he knows, he's being thrown out a window. Come on, buddy. You can't come up with a better story than that. But I do like that they throw in uh, a little bit of, you know, Bogomil's asking him, why are you carrying your gun on vacation? And Axel's like, I don't know. I've never been on vacation. I always carry my gun in Detroit because you have to, even if you're off the clock as a police officer. And I thought, really? Was that a thing? I Maybe. But I like that they add that in there. Yeah, I always kind of wonder, is that like Hollywood again? Uh, and like this is how cops act but like in reality cops yeah don't do that if i ever meet a cop i'll have to ask him yeah are there any cops listening to our program if so please write in and let us know do you have to have your weapon on you when you're off the clock at all times let us know <laughs> we're very curious yeah i'm also curious how many times have you actually like gotten to a gunfight and had to jump out of a building before it exploded because i always feel like hollywood <laughs> doesn't get that one right either so Bogomil tells Axel Inspector Todd has a message for him. He says, if you're out here in California investigating the Tandino murder, you shouldn't bother coming back. So now Judge Reinhold's Rosewood takes Axel out to arrange for bail. And then we cut to nighttime. Axel and Jenny are leaving the courthouse. So I guess Jenny bailed him out. They get in her car and he remarks how nice her car is. And she says, yeah, I remember you used to drive that crappy blue nova and he laughs we get a laugh because he says yeah i'm still driving it <laughs> jenny says victor her boss is a big time art dealer she does not think he had anything to do with mikey's death and axel just kind of dismisses the conversation and points out that there are some cops that have been following them as she rolls up to axel's hotel I love the fact that they kind of show that he's a cop and he's such a good cop that he's able to pick up the fact that they're tailing him yes so Rosewood and Taggart pull up across the street from the hotel and park as Axel and Jenny go in. Jenny asks how he can afford such a nice room, and he laughs and responds that they're only charging me the single room rate. And she's like, well, how can you even afford that? And I was like, yes, that's my point too. Motel 6, buddy. He jokes that she's right. He can't afford it, but he wants to stay because the bathroom is so fancy that they even have little robes with the hotel initials on them. <laughs> and he laughs again. Then he makes himself laugh and cracks himself up some more. I can totally relate because when I say a joke that I think is funny, I don't care if anybody else is laughing. I'm laughing at my own joke. Oh, I do that all the time. That, my, the jokes are for me. If everyone else laughs, then that's just great. But it's like, I'm not here to make you laugh. I'm here to make me laugh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> so before they talk about anything else, Axel picks up the phone and grabs the menu and orders some salmon, some shrimp sandwiches, and some kind of dessert, and tells them it's a late-night supper he wants delivered to the beige Ford parked across the street, <laughs> which we know is Taggart and Rosewood. <laughs> I really wish they would have shown the, the sandwich and the, the salmon, because it sounded fucking delicious. Every time well, I hear it, Rosewood, like, it was. Yeah, it's like, I always want to try it. Every time I hear it, I'm like, this sounds really good. I mean, I've had a lobster roll. I guess that's close to a shrimp sandwich. He tells Jenny he plans on staying in town until he figures out who killed Mikey. He says he's going to go down to the warehouse and check it out. And Jenny says, well, how are you planning on getting in? And they pause for a second. And of course, Axel laughs in response. 
Cut to the waiter with a tray full of food walking across traffic to deliver this food to, to Taggart and Rosewood. And I like that the waiter's all smiles and he's all, good evening, sirs. This is compliments of Mr. Axel Foley. Like, like this is just a totally normal thing he would ever do. And I like they're all, what the hell? Rosewood is is completely perplexed, but he digs in. He just starts eating and he's like, how did Axel know we were here? And Taggart just gets this look on his face like, obviously, you know. Well, I think he even uses he even used a line. He's like, because I let you drive. <laughs> so then we cut to Axel in the lobby. And I will put this clip in. I know I have it for sure because I cracked up. Running up to a table full of fruit. And he asks the guy standing behind the table, how much are a couple of bananas? And this guy is a very baby-faced Damon Wayans. He's credited in the credits as Banana Man. <laughs> <laughs> I love yes. that, Banana Man. I didn't realize this was his film debut. You're kidding. Nope, that's what that's what it said on IMDb. This was his film debut. He's very young and he's super funny. And again, it's a stereotype that, that wouldn't fly today, um, but it did back then where he's clearly acting very effeminate. And you can hear it in his voice and his mannerisms, the way he's got his hands in that droopy fashion that we associate with effeminate behavior by a man. It's just super stereotypical. <laughs> but I will play the clip because the way he talks to it, it's so funny. I love it. I need a couple of bananas. How much are they? Well, the buffet plate is twelve fifty. You get peaches, plums, oranges, and bananas. All I need is a couple of bananas. Shh. Go ahead. Take those bananas. So while the guys are being distracted, being served their food, Axel runs up and puts all three bananas that he got from the sky in the exhaust pipe. Rosewood is chowing down, really going to town on this sandwich. And he even asks the guy for extra mayonnaise. <laughs> and the waiter peeks back and he sees Axel and they wink at each other. Like the waiter's like totally covering for him. It's so funny. So the valet brings Jenny's car around and she and Axel are getting in. He smiles at Taggart and Rosewood and waves. They hurry and get rid of the food. And they're like, oh, there he is. There he, there he goes. So the Axel F music kicks in some more. And again, I keep saying, you know, I did say it's throughout this whole movie on and off. They throw in this Axel F and I never get tired of it. I love it. It always works. And I'll try and put in a little clip of it somewhere because, yeah, it's it's just catchy. When you see the banana trick, have you ever wanted or have you ever tried anything like that? Okay, so no, that's what I was going to say. I asked my husband immediately, I call bullshit on this, or does this really work? Because their car, when they go to drive, chugs and stops and stalls out and it won't start because uh -huh. the bananas are in the pipe. And my husband went, nope, <laughs> that's not how that works. That's not how that works at all. <laughs> Because I, I mean, like, oh. like the movie did bananas, but I've heard uh, in the past, like growing up, being the troubled youth that I was, that it was potatoes in the tailpipe you were supposed to do. Apparently, according to my husband, I didn't see this episode, but he saw Mythbusters, where mm -hmm. they did bananas, potatoes, and several other things in tailpipes to see what would happen. And every single time, they shot out of the pipe as soon as they started the car. The car did okay. not stall out and not start. It, it failed every time. So Mythbusters huh. for the win. 
All right. It's been busted. So Axel and Jenny head to the warehouse, covert operation. They're going to do a little sneak and peek to see what's going on there. Like I said, the car stalls out so the cops can't follow him. So Jenny gets him into the warehouse because she's got keys because she works for the, the art gallery. So that always seems sketchy to me that like you would risk this really good job. Why would you want to be there? I understand if you want to give him the key, you could lie and say he stole your keys when you guys were hanging out or something. But she actually wants to be there physically in on all of this and go too, which seems really risky to me. Yeah, like she's got a she's got a good job. There's no legitimate proof that anything is going on. She's going off of Axel's hunch at this point, which I mean, like maybe she trusts him enough that, you know, she knows she's a good cop. And if he thinks there's something going on, she'll follow his lead. But even then, it still feels kind of dangerous at this point. Like, why would you do that? Yeah, because they they make it very clear that the the three of them were good buddies, her and Mikey and Axel, like all these years and that they go way back. So they walk into this warehouse and he passes by this headless black mannequin and grabs one of the boobs. And he's all, what's happening, baby? And he starts laughing. (laughs) We get another laugh. Honestly, even though I'm, you know, making fun and keeping track of his laughs, every time he does it in the movie, it seems like a natural reaction that he just always makes himself laugh. And it makes me laugh. It's That's what I was going to say. It's a very infectious laugh. Whenever I hear Eddie Murphy laugh, I start laughing because it's just, it's very infectious. It's like, you just get behind it. You're like, okay, this is obviously funny. So they find a crate with some coffee grounds and they start joking about it. And he laughs. And then she mockingly does his laugh back at him. And it makes him laugh again. (laughs) It's so funny and cute. I love it. And you totally, at this point now, you buy their friendship. You could tell this is early Eddie Murphy. Like his acting ability hasn't quite hit to what he's he's going to become. It doesn't hurt the film because it's like, it feels like he's just naturally being himself and that chemistry rubs off with everybody in the movie. So this moment though gets interrupted because somebody starts to lift up a door to the warehouse, like at the loading dock. They hide, they see two men come in who empty a crate addressed to the gallery and they empty it of Deutschmark bearer bonds. Ooh, dun, dun, dun. We knew that was going to happen. They put him into a leather briefcase and then they take the briefcase and the empty crate and load them back into their van. And Jenny and Axel run out and get in her car and make chase. All right, listeners, that's as good a stopping place as any. We're going to put a pin in Beverly Hills Cop for this week. Please check back next week as we will drop part two of this amazingly fun episode. I'm so glad that this was Driving Dave's birthday pick. Um, We cover so many turkeys that we rarely get a chance to cover non-turkeys. I mean, we did a few series in season one, but yeah, this was was a real treat to get back to a non-turkey. So, like I said, uh, next week, part two, please come back and see us. In the meantime, if you're wanting to watch Beverly Hills Cop, all three of the Beverly Hills Cop films are at the time of this recording, currently available on Paramount Plus and Amazon Prime. So until next time, goodbye. Get the fuck out of here. No, I cannot. Hey listeners, Drive-In Dave here saying we know you have a lot of options when it comes to podcasts, so we want to thank you so much for listening to ours. Please be sure to follow us on all your social media platforms. Join us in the Bad Movie Conversation. We're on Facebook with a Let's Talk Turkeys page, as well as a discussion group where you can chat with other people who also love bad movies. We're also on Instagram at Let's Talk Turkeys, all one word. 
Plus, we're on Twitter with the handle at Gobble Podcast. That's G-O-B-B-L-E-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And of course, you can always email us direct at Let's Talk Turkeys, all one word, at yahoo.com. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.